in WD17. I'm a 15-minute walk away from the Vic, which is where, quite rudely, uh, Watford were not able to secure the championship uh, six years ago. It went to Bournemouth, and we've hosted Bournemouth uh, for the last six seasons. And finally, we've escaped. This is the first season in a long while that we won't be hosting Bournemouth. Um, AFC. Yeah, true. I remember that. Yeah, very No, but um, the football library is located in the dream palace of my mind, but will hopefully be physically in Watford. And the name Steve Menery is it Menery or Menary? I guess Menery. Menery, that's right. Yeah, it's, it's an Irish name, but it's oh. uh, I'm not Irish. But, to be no. sure, um, I'm Irish in that our au pair was called Jacqueline Kilban. So. Um, <laughs> That's the Irishness in me. But yes, Steve Mennery, your books are many, and it includes a couple of books on Celtic football, Wales on this day and Ireland on this day. Can you remember off the top of your head what happened on this day, on June the 9th, in years gone by? Oh my goodness, I could probably tell you, if I, if I, if I, if I cheated, I could tell you off the top of my head, that would be a complete lie. Cheat like away. I... In the meantime, I will tell the listener that you also wrote Outcast, the land that FIFA forgot GB United, British Olympic Football and the End of the Amateur Dream. And this book, freshly published, uh, I will stress that all proceeds go to social care charity, Community Integrated Care, which is a, a smart thing to do. Published 12 The book is The Away Leg, XI Football Stories, 11 Football Stories from On the Road. One of the most colourful covers of book and back covers that I've seen. And you've co-written it with the great James Montague, who visited the library and he had so much to say that I split it into a home leg and an away leg because we spoke for about two uh, hours. So we'll get back to James. But yes, 9th of June, what happened? 9th of June, 1992, Ireland's game in the US Cup finished two days ago and Jack Charlton is having regrets. The choice was to give the lads an extra four-nights holiday or turn to take them on tour, wrote Charlton. Yeah, so that's what, that was what happened in Ireland. Charlton was having regrets on that day. Yes. Uh, he might have had more than that. And then in Wales, uh, Mark Hughes and Neville Southall took charge after a Bobby Gould quit as Wales manager four days earlier. I read about that. Uh, Nev writes about it in his excellent book, The Bin Men Chronicles, that came out, I think, just around the time uh, that you... Uh, wrote that book. It was co-written with James Corbett, who is plug, 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 plug. Uh, I think he writes, apart from you, obviously, uh, James Corbett writes the best essay in this book. Uh, the chapter is Soldiers Without Weapons. When you read it, did you think, wow, I'd better up my game here? Uh, well, probably James and I did ours last. I suppose we have seen how long other people wrote, I guess, in a way, you know, in terms of how long we were going to write. But, um, yeah, no, that was an excellent piece. I thought there were some very good pieces in there. James is good. Sammy's very good. All, all sorts of ones. Harry's ones, you know, difficult to, difficult to pick one out, I think, really. But, yeah, I, I mean, I know James, and he's, you know, he's a very good writer and has done some very good stuff in the past. And right. now's a novel out, I believe. So good luck to James for his novel. Oh, yes, that's quite right. It's all about Liverpool. It's just come out. Liverpool That's in the right. early 80s. Uh, I would love to speak to James because he founded Decubertan. I spoke to David Hartrick, who founded Ockley. Um, I've spoken to James Montague in the past. Um, the process of getting the authors. You obviously had to get nine because James was on board and you are on board. Uh, and you've got so many contacts and James has even more. So how did you distill it to nine other contributors plus a forward from Mr Goldblatt? I don't know, I guess I suppose, you know, I kind of had the, the, the broad idea and then I approached James and said, what do you think about this idea? You know, we're not, we're both freelancers, we're not doing very much in the in the lockdown, like a lot of freelancers, perhaps we could do something constructive. So then we kind of talked about people, and some of the people like James Corbett were people we knew individually, Nick Ames, you know, were, were kind of people we knew jointly. Uh, James Corbett was another one. Uh, Harry writes When Saturday Comes, 
which I've, I've written for and off for a long time. Although I didn't know Harry, you know, I approached him, he was very good. So there was some kind of, there was some, some, you know, Harry was someone that we both thought would be a good person to, to approach. So, you know, it just kind of went that way. And then, you know, we wanted some, some contributions on women's football. So uh, I approached a girl called Jen O'Neill, who runs She Kips magazine, and said, hey, you know, what do you think? You've got any suggestions? And she mentioned Catherine. And so it kind of, you know, it kind of went that way, really. That was how it, um, it kind of developed. And I think James was the one that had the idea for 11 people. And it kind of, you know, one, it kind of went above that and then it kind of settled that 11 sort of naturally in the end. But it was James' idea that we should have 11 and that's kind of how it transpired, really. I have one big complaint about this book. It isn't long enough. So I hope you can get... I'll, I'll take that in the, in the spirit that it was intended. Yeah. Good. Again, as we said before, I do try and just insult the contributor. 150 of these, and I think I've... No, I haven't. I, I tend not to... My only criticism is deeply positive criticism. Um, and the book, The Away Leg, uh, which is available wherever you get your books and published by Pitch Publishing. This is not your first book on Pitch because the Wales and the Island books came out. Outcast was originally released in 2007 and then republished as a second edition in 2012. So this is a question as someone who has uh, written a book that I'm not here to talk about who revised it for a latter edition. What changes did you have to make uh, five years after it originally came out? Um, well, the first, I say the first one was published by Know the Score, who, who well, sadly went under, which was a shame. Although I would say they, they did, uh, they didn't go under or owe me anything, so they Good. treated me very fairly. Uh, I suppose thing yeah, moved on. I added an extra chapter, maybe made a cut of, you know, amended a cut of errors. You know, it'd be great to say there's none in there, but life doesn't work that way. So I just kind of what have moved on, and I think in some cases, it, you know, hadn't necessarily moved on. And obviously, in other places it had. You know, Kosovo were on their way to joining FIFA, so were Gibraltar. In other places, it was, you know. And hadn't moved on that positively at all, really. So I guess it was kind of a, a summation, really, adding that extra chapter. And didn't really amend the, the, the body of the text much at all, really. Just added that one to try and sort of, you know, where are we now, I suppose. Uh, I've spoken to James Hendicott, who wrote about Kanifa. Were you at the Kanifa World Football Cup in 2018? That was the London one, was it? Yeah. Yeah, I was. Yeah, yeah. I did. I went up there. I did a piece about Tuvalu uh, for World Soccer. I may have seen it, but yes, Tuvalu, lovely Tuvalu. You talk about the FIFI World Cup, which seems to be a forerunner of Kanifa. They were the kind of ones really that had this idea. You know, they went to the Island Games in the late 90s, I think, and were sort of, or the early 2000s, and were inspired by this idea of places that weren't in FIFA and having this kind of waiting room. Yeah, they were quite eccentric guys. Unfortunately, they fell out in the end and then, you know, got spectacularly. And then Per Anders Blendu was one of the referees in their games. Uh, ultimately formed Conifa, but uh, yeah, they were quite interesting guys, you know. And, and I went to some of their some of their events. They were quite, a, yeah, an interesting bunch. Yeah, and uh, all play Conifa, although as with every uh, political organisation, driven by factions and kind of Judean People's Front, People's Front of Conifa. Fun fact: FIFA do not recognise Greenland, and yet they do recognise Montserrat or Curaçao. Um, who is the nation that FIFA recognised that it baffles you? It baffles you why they're recognised. I don't know. You can, I suppose you can have someone like the US Virgin Islands, you know, which is very close to America. And, I, I don't know, some, some of them are so controlled, you know, at an underlying level by the other government that you just kind of wonder how they've got there. And other ones are just completely, you know, remain on the outside. 
And it's, uh, I, 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 I saw some of the Dutch ones of metamorphosis in the Caribbean, you know, growing out of the Netherlands Antilles and then, you know, other people took that over. So they, they're kind of growing that way. But when I, when I dis- yeah. well, no, we- I wouldn't like to think I disliked any of them, really. Okay. You know, you could- we're speaking, mean, those small countries, you know. we're speaking a week and a bit before two FIFA members who are not countries are playing each other. Because in a PowerPoint that I found, um, I think through Play the Game, uh, you said that, well, England are not a nation recognised by the UN. Scotland, Wales, Northern Ireland. Really, we should be playing as the United Kingdom. Well, yeah, I mean, you know, if you're going to do it on a purely political level, then, then yes, yeah, we probably should do. But I think, you know, it, it, you, you look through the development of football, you know, that idea of playing jointly never really worked out, did it? You know, it never, it never kind of took off. You know, there's a couple of occasions when they did it for charities, and otherwise it was just, uh, you know, just at an amateur level they played, and that, that was why that was never going to take yeah. off, I don't think. Which, and we'll come back to that because of your book, but um, it behoves me to ask... Your first book was about globetrotting. Where did this bug come from? Was it National Geographic magazines, TV, Football Italia? Oh, I don't know, really. I guess I kind of grew up, I suppose, looking at, you know, wanting to see other places around the world, really. I, I guess I always kind of, yeah, just had this idea. I mean, I grew up in a small village in the New Forest, and, and there was, you know, and I grew up with people who were terrified to go over the cattle grid, and I, I was quite keen to get over the cattle grid and find out what was the other side of the world, you know. Probably growing up in a small place was the main driver, I suppose. Uh, growing up in Watford, kind of 20 minutes from London, a hop, skip and a jump from Wembley Stadium, everything's on the doorstep, and yet to go to London was still vaguely foreign. I'm more of a kind of Metland, Metroland, Metline kid. I hung out in Pinner and Northwood and uh, Stanmore, so that area of London. But I couldn't, and I, I told James this, I don't like airports I would rather never step foot in an airport again. I can't wait for the day teleportation begins and my molecules can zap to, I don't know, northern Cyprus. Uh, do you keep in touch with the people you wrote about in Outcasts? Yeah, some of them I do. Yeah, ironically, uh, one of the guys in the Falcon section, uh, he appears in, in uh, the away leg. Uh, and he was a guy called Patrick Watts and he was the one that was on the radio in the Falcons when they were getting invaded by the Argentinians and he was giving all the people in the outlying parts of the Falcons, um, you know, updates on, what, on where the Argentinian troops were until they turned up into a room, stuck a gun in his ear and told him to put the, the, the thing down, uh, put the microphone down. Anyway, he was a big proponent of football in the Falcons and actually Harry met him, Harry, when he in the 1998 World Cup, Harry Pearson. So it was uh, kind of strange when I was reading through that chapter and he describes this guy from the Falcons who's a Preston North End fan, even though he doesn't mention uh, Patrick. And I'm like, ah, oh, yeah, I know that guy, it's Patrick, you know, so it's strange. So yeah, and I, and I emailed him after that and, and sort of told him, told him that. So yeah, I do keep in touch with some of them, yeah. I mean, some of them move on, you know, some of the people in the Falcons, have, well, the people in the Greenland in particular have moved on, you know, and, and that's just kind of the way it goes. But yeah, I keep in touch with some of them. Tuvalu came here, although they're not in Outcast. They came here on a European tour a few years ago, and I went out and saw them. And then, obviously, you know, I went and saw them again when they were in the in the World Cup in London. So, some of that, the Kanifa Football World Cup, was great. Some of it was, uh, well, it's football, so it can, and they play so many games. But my thrill was being so close to Bruce Grobelar, watching the Grobelar close up as he's watching Meta Bailey land. I've got one of those hyperinflated bills. I think it's a hundred million because the Meta Bailey land had to fund their own voyage. And I spoke to Justin Wally, whom you may have come across, a fellow... Yeah, no, I met Justin a few times, lovely guy, yeah. 
Yeah. Um, if you pump the name Steve Mennery World Service into the search engine of your choice, if you ask Jeeves, you'll be able to listen to a short six-minute excerpt of a World Service piece for the World Football Show where you go to Rimini. What were you doing there? I kind of had this idea that, you know, you should go and watch the, you know, the San Marino League, the weakest one in Europe. So I decided we should go, oh, I should go and watch the final of the league, which was uh, quite an interesting experience. It's a very good radio feature, the sound and the colour. Uh, and that's what this book is. Um, I think about if you cut everything away and just have the actual football, it would be a pamphlet. And yet if you cut out the actual football, you would still have a fantastic book uh, that makes its way into the shelves of the football library. You get your laminated football library card. Um, if you were to recommend one book about globetrotting to read after the away leg, whose book would you recommend? It can oh, be more yeah. than one. Yes, it can be more than it one. It can be more than one. Uh, well, David's written, you know, The Ball is Round and, and, and the follow-up. James's book, 31 nil. Uh, it would be an obvious one as well. I think James Montague's book, you know, because you've got a kind of historical aspect and a more modern aspect of the two. So is that the model when you're writing uh, Outcasts or you're writing your chapter in The Away Leg? Do you read it back and think, nah, this needs to be more Goldblattian? Nah, I must have, when I'm, if I was, certainly if I was trying to, you know, I haven't read a, a full-length book for a few years. I did an academic one a, a few years back. I try not to read anything because I think you'll end up coming into probably, not that I, I know enough about music, but I can see you there with your guitar in the, in the photo. I think if you listen to too much music or, or reading too much at the same time, you know, you're taking in too many other influences and, you, you know, you want to try and write as yourself. Uh, another website wrote, did a very nice review of uh, the away leg and described my chapter as melancholic. Well, you know, I said that to my kids and they didn't really disagree with that. So, <laughs> although they were talking about the subject matter rather than me personally, but you know, I think there's an element of you when you're writing something that comes out in the writing. So it's not good to try and I don't think take on an over over. It's like listening to a band that sounds far too much like another band. Mm-hmm. You know, the, if the, the, the the better bands are the ones that sound. You know, rather like themselves and not too much like anyone else. Whenever I write a bit of music, it is always influenced by the song I've just listened to. I take a chord structure or a lyric and run with it. Uh, what you do in your chapter, which is the Georgian Crossroads, you're watching Lokomotiv Tbilisi and Dinamo Tbilisi in uh, 2017. If you follow the Goldblatt rule, uh, one thing I took from reading The Age of Football, or at least um, I haven't read it all, but I've read around it, is that the David Goldblatt rule of football is that localism is an endangered species because of globalisation. And you say that when you notice uh, Barcelona, Real Madrid... Bayern Munich. Bayern Munich. Bayern Munich. I mean, probably Bayern's, you know, as big as any team in, uh, in, Tbil- in Tbilisi, Georgia. You know, and I can remember going to meet the Federation guys and having a beer in this bar drinking beer out of Steins and there's all the you know, Munich scarves. I can't remember if that's in the chapter, but all the Munich scarves are there. Mm-hmm. I think that's very much the case. You know, I mean, yeah, Tbilisi was an, it was an example of that, but that's all over the case. Unless the local brand's strong enough, it'll just get swamped over by other brands. And, and that's, you know, that's the way football is now. I'm not entirely sure if it's a good way, but that's that's the way it is. And Everyone, t- everyone talks about this idea of a global fan. I don't really agree with that. I know that's what the marketing people want you to have, you know, that we have a global fan and they'll you know, have a stake here and a stake there. But, you know, really, you know, we're just supporting Bournemouth and, and Watford and, you know, you might have an affinity for another, another team, you know, but they wouldn't be the same affinity as you've got for your own teams and you wouldn't have the same investment in them. And obviously the people that are promoting this idea want a financial investment out of you. So the idea that you're going to be, 
you know, you're going to take up your football budget and you're going to spend 30% on your home team and 20% on Barcelona and 20% on Juventus. You know, I don't really, personally don't buy into that, but I'm sure there's plenty that disagree with me. You know. Manchester United and Liverpool both have their corporate headquarters in London. I think that is Q very much ED. Uh, but you, yeah. you open this chapter, drinking crushed pomegranate juice from a street market trader Watched over by the mother of Georgia was an unusual pre-game drink. Whoosh, I'm there. What's he going to tell me now? There was an easy analogy to be drawn with Georgian football, which, like the pomegranates, had been squeezed dry by forces beyond their control and left to rot. OK, so that's like an opening riff at the beginning of a kink song. Uh, you then tell this correct melancholy story of Georgian football, which is the second or third sport in the country because rugby has overtaken it. Um, were you? Did you say you were at the England George? No, you wouldn't have been at the England Georgia match last year, the rugby game at Twickenham. No, I watched it. I watched it, but I wasn't at the Georgia Russia game. I wouldn't say it's definitely overtaken it, but it was certainly at that point in time. You know, it was like kind of a tipping a tipping point, really. And the you know, and you go to watch. You know, the Georgians play Russia, and it's quite you know, and it's quite an experience. You know. In the way that you wouldn't get, you would certainly never get the Georgian club game anymore. Even though Tbilisi had uh, not Liverpool out of the European Cup in the seventies when I was a kid and won the cup in this cup. Yeah, I spoke you know, to so that, uh, spoke to Stephen Scrag about Dinamo Tbilisi and Carl Zeiss Jaina, so it was good to see them recognised in this chapter. Will the UEFA Conference League help? Oh, help the match fixers! I'm sure they'll be rubbing their hands and thinking this is great fun, won't it? Oh, um, you cynical cad! But. Yeah. Now, I, I, I don't think it will because if you look at the smaller, the more ambitious sort of smaller clubs, and I don't mean to, to denigrate anyone, but that's like Doolan. Sure, Flavio Becker was there in Luxembourg. I believe he, I believe he's now sponsored Hesperange, but at the time when he was put money into Doolan, you know, and they, and they amalgamated a couple of clubs that weren't massively popular in Luxembourg because they had more money and they were bigger than everyone else, which is the same in, in many countries. But, you know, they got into the Europa League group stages in two successive years. You know, so they want to be in, you know, and that's that. That's what they were aiming for. They didn't do it once. They came back and did it again. They're not aiming for the conference. And when they got in the Europa League group stages, funny enough, I happened to be in Luxembourg with Nick Ames. Not that everything goes back to this book, but I was I was with them, and Nick and I were there for separate people. And um, you know, those games sold out immediately. You know, they, they had you know they had some big teams in their group. Milan, I think, was one of them. And they sold all those tickets out. So when they get to the group stages of the conference and they've got matches against teams of Latvia and San Marino or wherever, they're not going to sell out immediately. No. So it's, it's a way of the UEFA distributing their money to other clubs. So I think UEFA are trying to do the right thing. You know, I'm not sure. You know, they're trying to, I think maybe they're, trying, they're doing the wrong thing by trying, they're trying to do the right thing, they're doing the wrong thing. Mm. I wonder that the first final is going to be like Wolves, or who came sixth? Le- Leicester against, I don't know, Villarreal or someone. So we're going to get the top five nations, like Wolfsburg, Marseille, uh, Wolves and Leicester. That'll be the final four of the Conference League. Meanwhile, the Dudelonges and the Tbilisis will have gone out in the knockout rounds. And I don't think it'll last very long. I'm prepared to be proven wrong and it'll be very good because it will mean that People on their CVs will have European football at more than just a qualifier level. It'd be good if Rangers could win that tournament or Celtic. Um, But that's going to be... It's definitely the Thursday night, like, Channel 5 league, red button Channel 5. I, I, I think you're right. I, mean, I, I wonder how long it will last. I, I, on one level, I 
like kind of the, the optimistic side of me, you know, only a small side. But I, I wonder if it'll be a bit like the Johnson's paint trophy because when they let the under twenty three teams in it, everyone's going, oh, blum hell, if there's two under twenty three teams at the final, it'll be a waste of time just play on play on Wimbledon rec or something, you know, because no one cares about that. But actually, you know, I don't think any of them have got to the final yet, have they? You know, somehow. So I'm rather hoping that the big teams maybe aren't that bothered about this conference and they manage to they manage to lose out to some of the smaller teams and maybe we'll see some you know teams that aren't small in their own country but maybe will be small at a Champions League, league level you know get to do and that will be more interesting I think really this will become the main story after the Euros uh, but the teams who have qualified uh, for the conference league uh, Tottenham Hotspur Union Berlin Roma and Rennes Ruben Kazan Trabzonspor Anderlecht Kolos Kovalivka of Ukraine Luzerne LASK, Pauk, uh, and then in the first qualifying round, see if any of these whet your appetite. Um, the third place in the Slovakian league, Spartak Trnava, uh, might be up against Noah, who came second in the Armenian league. If anything, this is the hipster league. Have you heard of uh, Svantil Georgi? No, I've heard of Noah because they tried to buy Erding him in Germany and that didn't work out and they're, they're kind of like one of these um, multi-club ownership operations. Um. But I don't think the Erding and leg worked out, so I do know about, about Noah. Yeah, but I think those things have perhaps been more interesting, really. Or, or maybe, maybe they'll only be interesting for people like me and not, not interesting at a wider level. But I, I don't really think the interest at a wider level is, is, is of, of, of paramount importance. Mm. But there are some, as you've just read out of our list there, you know, some big clubs there. And you know, people like that, you know, big clubs. And I must must also mention Gagra, Batumi and Dila Gori, uh, respectively cup winner second and third in the Georgian League, although they don't make their money from gate receipts. Well, they really do well. If they get a home tie in the Conference League, that money will come from UEFA. So will that not help the domestic league? Because they might be able to buy some better players. Yeah, I think it will. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. But it'll be, it'll be a bit. Yeah, yes, it will. But it'll be a bit like we're subsidising them. So they've, we've created this model, this globalised model, where we want to steal all their fans, and then we're going to go back and hand them out subsidies because we've stolen all, all the fans of these clubs. And I, I'm not sure, personally, you know, that that's a, a model that I like. But you know, you can't do much about it, or I can't see how you can do much about it. But certainly, that's uh, you know, it's a subsidy model. Yeah, so it's like a guilt trip, isn't it? Oh, we've nicked all their fans just to give them a bit of extra money. Yeah, you know, UEFA wouldn't like to hear it described as such, but I think that's that's probably how I'd, uh, my melancholic side would describe it as such. Oh, ye of little faith. The away leg, eleven football stories from on the road, is out now, published by Pitch. How much money goes to CIC? Uh, all the proceeds, and uh, the authors, myself, James, and the other nine people who uh, very kindly give up their time, and David Goldblatt, his introduction, uh, don't get anything. Everything goes straight to, to community, community integrated care, which does a fantastic job. Here, here, and the chapter that James Corbett has written, which is set in Palestine, which is where his grandpa fought uh, in the Second World War, um, James writes movingly about his grandpa and how he moved to a care home and... I don't know about this protective ring. It might be as big as a fucking polo um, that they put around the care homes. Because, yes, they did put a ring around it. But was it miles long or was it a centimetre long? We'll find out in the inquiry. One thing that we try not to mention so much is 
politics in terms of left and right. Politics is essential to football because it's about areas and the people who play, run and support it. Nick Ames, your friend, has talked about the sublime human connection. And Arik Rosenstein wrote that Jews and Arabs could get together in a football stadium in Jerusalem in a way that they couldn't elsewhere. Uh, James mentioned sport, politics and national identity. James Montague's chapter, which um, I can't believe he's given this away for nothing because he could run this in world soccer or in one of his many wonderful books, which are all in the football library alongside yours. Steve Mennery, you've collaborated with James with this book. This chapter about North Korea and Lebanon, who also play a supporting role, surreal, completely surreal. It was, yeah, yeah, bizarre, very bizarre. But yeah, no one's get that's what I think was great about James' particular one. It's an insight that you know a lot of the places, you know, a lot of people have been to those other countries, and you know, you'll get you'll get a fantastic insight. That one, you get an insight where very few people have been, apart from the players and a few, you know, a few away away teams. So yeah, it was very strange, very strange. It reminds me of um, the book Nothing to Envy, which I think is Barbara Demick, one of the best books I've ever read. And all I remember is just the crushing nature of living in Korea. And um, James becomes a tourist, not just a football tourist, a human tourist. Um, I'd also like to mention uh, that article about um, Boca against River, the final final, by Martino Simšić Aresi. Who came across Martino first? Uh, Martino James. Martino's a friend of James's. Um, the editor-in-chief of Copa 90 Stories. Uh, so I'd like to point you towards Copa 90, which is almost unparalleled, I think. World soccer can get you behind the scenes. Copa 90, you can smell it, I think. And what they're doing is extraordinary. Have you been involved with Copa 90 at any point? No, no, but I just enjoy the output like a lot of other people, like yourself. And a lot of others. Yeah, no, it does some excellent stuff. Yeah, just amazing. Whoever they cover, they they make it really vivid. And uh, Martino, just behind the scenes of the scenes, um, is is phenomenal. And uh, I've heard from Jonathan Wilson, who was also there, um, about covering that Copa Libertadores final in 2018. And just no one knew. And Martino says that he knew before anyone else, that or his um, reporter knew that the game was going to be cancelled hours before the public knew. Yeah, it's just yeah, it's incredible. Well, yeah, what a what a carry on that was. You know, it's very difficult to keep up with. It, I think really, whether you were reading about it or whether you were there, it must have been very hard. I think. Have you ever been caught up in something like that, carnage? Yeah, yes. On a, a, a couple of occasions, only as a fan. Once when Bournemouth played Derby in the uh, in the eighties, I reckon now, mm. during the miners' strike, and they used to let the fans uh, open the gates at either end, you know, at the same time. And all the Derby fans, you know, some of the Bournemouth fans, a dozen of them, some of them I went to school with, with you know, what the, called the casuals at the time, decided they wanted to stand and fight these Derby fans. And that was pretty grim, you know, because they got an absolute shoe. You know, they, and they, the, the Derby fans didn't do anything to me at all because I was like about 17. But they gave these kids an absolute shoe and then the police set the dogs and all of them. That was pretty mm. grim. That was grim. And then in, in Peru, actually, I went to, I watched um, Sporting Cristal play Universitario and it decided the league title. I was with a Peruvian friend of mine. This was in the early 90s. Yeah, anyway, at the time the shiny path were there, and Fujimori uh, was in charge, and or was, I think was running for president at that time. And, and I went to this game early nineties, and uh, one team scored a penalty with about ten minutes to go. And my friend said, "Right, we need to go." I said, "What do you mean we need to go?" 
And he, I said, there's like 10 minutes left. He said, no, no, you don't understand. He said, we need to go. He said, just come out of the stadium. He said, just keep running. He said, and don't stop until I tell you to stop. And the, the police had just set up on everybody. They were just, you know, beating people up with the back with their rifle butts. There was a helicopter that was buzzing everyone. And they got a water cannon. And they were just wiping at anyone they could see. And it was absolute carnage. And luckily, I was a bit taller than my friend. So I could, although he was probably fitter than me, I could I could uh, easily keep up with him. And that, that was that was just, uh, yeah, a crazy thing. Because as soon as that penalty had gone in, it was still, I'd say there was plenty of time for the other team to come back and win 2-1. But, you know, the police didn't take it that way. So that was, a, that was quite an occasion. It would be remiss of me not to ask. Uh, this will go out at the end of June. And the story is definitely going to be, what about all these footballers, eh, with their anti-racism? Isn't it so depressing that in a country as amazing as Britain, not at the moment, the problem is, is not, why can't we have a decent central midfielder? Or who's going to play at the back if Maguire's not fit? That hasn't become the story. And there are certain people who want that not to be the story. They want the story to be the anti-racism and the anti-anti-racism so as someone who's dealt with football and politics for 25 years, who has lectured at both UEL, Southampton Solent, da 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 which I think is where Chris Stark went to university, Southampton Solent. Well, I think it's just about, you know, trying to treat people as you want to be treated yourself. That's where I think you should kind of, <clears throat> that should be a starting point for everyone. Maybe it's a bit of a naive thing to say, but, you know, we should try and treat everyone uh, uh, as we want to be treated ourselves. And if that's a way of doing that, then... You know that's what we should do, and, and if, if Zaha doesn't want to do it, then that's absolutely up to him. But you know, it's uh, yeah, it does seem to have overtaken everything, doesn't it? Really, you know? it seems that the actual the playing of the sport, whether it's cricket with the tweets or football with this, seems to be you know been overtaken by you know the outside part of it, I guess, rather than the inside part. Uh, which is supremely ironic, considering that the away leg, as I say, is it's colour. It's the ultimate book about colour. All the pieces are fantastic. There's three or four that are anthology worthy, uh, which is which is the ultimate compliment I can give. That if I were putting together a best of the football library, brackets plus the collected works of David Goldblatt, it's not fair to put him in an anthology. Um, I'm actually I haven't read either of the books. I've read The Game of Our Lives, which is superlative, uh, but um, Ball is Round and Age of Football. I want to save up because Goldblatt is one of the Mount Rushmore figures of football journalism, along with Simon Cooper and Brian Glanville. And they're the big three. Rafa Honigstein, Guillaume Balaguet, um, who's got a Maradona biography out in July, which is going to be a big, big seller. I don't know who your football hero is. Is it Maradona or is it someone else? My football hero? Oh, I don't know. I I grew up watching Bournemouth, so they were kind of like a a lonely team then. So I did... uh, Certainly, I remember when I first became a journalist in the 90s, I needed a pen name because I was doing some... I was moonlighting for someone else, so I had to come up with the name. And and the magazine I was writing for, I came up with what I thought was a very clever name, so they said, no, that's stupid, Steve. Everyone else has tried that one before. So I called myself Trevor Morgan, who was a Bournemouth uh, striker at the time. (laughs) And I, but last I heard was coaching in India, I think. But uh, yeah, he was uh, Trevor Chesty Morgan. So, so I guess maybe he's my hero as I chose him for my pen name. Very good. There is a book called Dean Court Days, which is about the pre um, Eddie Howe era, Jeff Mostyn, Maxine Denman, plucky little Bournemouth owned by a Russian billionaire. But let's not get into that because I want this to be a good show. The era of Bournemouth in the 70s and 80s. Do you prefer that to the current era of millions and really, really good international class players? Uh, yeah. You know, I've been to many away games over the years, but I could never bring the stuff to go to an away game in the Premier League. Well, other reasons for that. It wasn't like some great, you know, 
moralistic stand. But yeah, I, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I, I never. I, I used to watch Matt. If Matt Day would be on, I didn't have the, you know that, that great affinity for it. And it was great when Bournemouth were in it, and I know you know it'd be good if they got back. That would be brilliant too. I know it'd be brilliant for the fans. But yeah, you kind of like quite liked it. You know, I went with my son in about. Well, he's 18, so he must have been about two or three. And his mother was at work, so I just took him. It was, you know, 2,000 people in a 10,000-seat stadium. And you could sit amongst 500 people, and if you wanted to toddle around, you didn't annoy anyone. That so, was my yeah, first experience My first experience at the Vic. It was in 1998 against Wrexham. Uh, probably 6,000 people there. I remember the lower rouse was completely empty, and I remember running either to get the ball or just running. Uh, through the seats. But there are two levels of the Premier League. Uh, there's the, isn't it great that we've got 150 million quid to spend? And then there's the turnover of half a billion pounds, or as you call it, game 39 is already here. There is a whole list at play the game. Is it .org? Play the game .org? Oh, yeah, the preseason friendlies. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, absolutely. There's yeah. a whole load half of pieces. That, yes. There's a whole lot of pieces that you've written in white papers and you say, yes, pre-season friendlies between Premier League clubs, mostly in Asia and North America, is having a distorting effect on elite football. Yeah, yeah I, think, I think that's true. I mean, you know, the, 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 I mean, when they go to Asia, they don't generally like to play the local teams anyway. They like to play each other. And uh, yeah, I think it is because, again, it goes back to this whole thing about, you know, we, we must search, we must the search for the global fan. And then, and then, was, then I think they realised a bit now that you know that, that that's maybe a bit distasteful that they're taking fans away from other clubs. So then they're trying to you know sell this idea that people are supporting lots of different clubs. And there's nothing wrong with people in South Korea who want to watch Barcelona. You know, I, I, you know why shouldn't they? That's completely fair enough. But what about the clubs in in those countries themselves? Is is what was the question I would ask? Mm-hmm. And I think those pre-season games are absolutely that. You know, they go to them. There was one I think. Was it, was it last summer, I think, maybe, where, you know, where they'll go with a big star, they'll advertise that star, they'll sell expensive tickets, and then they get there and the star's on the bench because they don't want to be injured for the next game, which is maybe more meaningful than that pre-season friendly. And, you know, that's happened on multiple occasions now. And, and uh, it must be a right pain for the marketing people because, they're, you know, they're marketing the club in the best faith. And then the manager says, well, I think he's got an injury, and he's probably doing that for the right reasons as well. And then the fans are left thinking, well, hold on, I've just paid all this money, and where are they, you know, it's... I mean, everyone's different, aren't they? As you say, it's two different levels of football, two different ideas. But you can't bridge it. At no point does Gino Pozzo want Watford to be um, Man United. We want to be Southampton, Everton, uh, even Norwich. That's the goal for Watford. Decent town. We're a Premier League town again, which is, and the high street looks like a Premier League high street. Uh, it's not Manchester. It's not West London. It's not. North London to an extent, but Watford know our place because our history, like Bournemouth, dictates that we are not one of the elite clubs because we haven't got the history and the cups, which is my argument that by rights, Sunderland, Nottingham Forest and uh, Newcastle should be among the top 10, even Middlesbrough and Preston. Watford and Bournemouth should are mid-table championship clubs based on prestige, and yet we're lucky to have to be run properly. Just imagine what would happen if Newcastle and Sunderland were run properly. Yes. No, no, I think you're quite right. I mean, when Bournemouth got into the Championship, I thought this is fantastic. And I don't know anyone that didn't. They thought this is brilliant, you know, because they'd only been in it once before for three years and everything went badly wrong after that when they dropped out of it. 
and uh, you know, so everyone thought this is fantastic. When they got into it and got out of it in, 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 in you know in a direction that we didn't expect, it was you know it, it was yeah. So, so yeah, absolutely right. There's some big clubs with an awful lot of fans, traditional traditionally large followings that you know should be far higher than they are at the moment. You know, Portsmouth will be another one from the south coast. Yeah. You know? I think we're going to see them in the next 10 years because they're run by businessmen. And if they run it in the way that Norwich run the club, I mean, they're going to get 50 million quid for Wendia eventually. Think how you can plumb that and you can get five players for that, especially when their best player, Timu Puki, costs nothing. Uh, so I will, I'll watch Norwich. I think they're in a better position than Watford to stay up. I suppose you're relieved that Bournemouth don't have to play Brentford for another season. Sorry. Yeah, yeah. That was a great game of football, wasn't it? It was a great game of football. It's a shame, you know, Meffin brought him down. Bitterly ironic that an ex-Brentford player did that. Uh-huh. But yeah, it was a great. If you weren't a fan of either team, it was probably a fantastic piece of entertainment. I should think. Really. Well, all Watford fans posted that Jefferson Lerma, local man, is pleased, crying, laughing emoji, and that's because certain fans, I call them children, um, as opposed to the legacy fans, their their fandom is personal. It's like loving Bay City Rollers or Blur. They're, it's not liking a football team or a particular player. It's just us. I choose that Watford is part of my life. It could be part of my Twitter handle. And I will mercilessly mock and tease and crush anyone who gets in our way. I don't know if you're involved in the narrative online about football uh, coverage, but that seems to be where it's going, kind of bickering and very politically minded, kind of my team's better than your team. Yeah, I think so. I, I only went on Twitter last year. I'm not a giant social media person. I went on it because I think there's a thing, you know, with journalists now, you kind of expect to sort of publicise your own stories, which is not unreasonable if someone's paying you, so I kind of, sort of reluctantly went on that. But yeah, I can I can absolutely see that. I think you're quite right about that. That, that is kind of the way, so I just try to sort of keep and who- out of that. Who is paying you at the moment? Who are you writing for? Well, I still write for World Soccer. I've written for that for a long time. And I run, an, uh, rather ironically, it seems we're not in the EU, I run a match-fixing project, uh, part of the Erasmus programme for the University of Nicosia in Cyprus. So I'm like the project manager of that. I've done that for the last couple of years. So I've, uh, I've been very fortunate during the lockdown that I've actually had some income. I'm like an awful lot of freelancers that haven't had any. So although you know, I've suffered the drop away as everyone else has, has, has suffered, you know, I've had a bit of a cushion. I don't want to depress the listener. So in um, 30 seconds, what have you found with the match fixing? Is it more prevalent or are people getting through to arrest these fixers? No, near enough is being done because it's quite easy to do. And it's, you know, and it's, it's all happening at the lower level now. It's not happening at the higher level. And, and so I think if you go out in a tournament, you know, going back to what you said about the conference, you know, uh, you know, if you have a tournament like that, it'll all have, it'll all have lower teams, smaller teams in it. And those smaller teams are much easier to corrupt, you know, because you don't even need to own the team. You know, if you're looking to do that, you can just offer to pay the players wages. That's enough. And uh, so, you know, and football is very hard to sustain at a lower level in those countries. It's much more vulnerable, I think, in, in a lot of countries in Europe because there's just not the money there. There's not the, the sponsorship, the Game money, TV money, that kind of thing. So that you know, that it's very hard to keep. There's some good examples in, in in lots of countries, but it's harder to sustain. So, yeah. To go back to your chapter in the book, it is scary what you say. Some players were on as little as forty pound a month. Um, you quote Nika Jagakova. Yeah. Who is? Nika, yeah. Yeah, Nika is the vice president of the Football Federation there. Uh, everything was state-funded in Soviet times. After the Soviet Union was gone, the state had to subsidise the sport down to a grassroots level. So a lot of um, 
football clubs have to be funded by the, the state. And you say... Uh, young Georgian players were hoovered up by local clubs, developed, exported like red wine or almonds, pistachio and walnuts. Um, so again, not quite a quiet anger. There's a little bit of anger and a bit of resignation, but a lot of objective reporting in that piece. Did you feel as you were writing it, you were angry about everything? Yeah, I think so, because it's, uh, you know, I think, you know, the analogy I use at the end when they're talking about the Super Cup, there's nothing wrong with staging the Super Cup in other countries, but if you stage a Super Cup in Tbilisi or, you know, in Tallinn or somewhere, is that going to make those people that, that go to that game, the ones that can get tickets, is it going to want to make them watch the football in Georgia or Estonia or whatever, or is it going to make them want, want to watch the teams playing in the Super Cup? And I would, say, I would argue it's going to make them more likely to want to watch to follow the teams playing in the Super Cup match than it is to go back away and watch their own teams. So that was, you know, yeah. And, and, I, and I think there's, there's too much of that. You know, we, yeah, obviously we can't, you know, we're not going to show match of the day with the Estonian Premier League or something like that because that would be silly. But in some ways, the things that you are trying to do, you know, they are trying to do something about this. You know, they are, they, you know they're, they're well aware that this is going on, but they're, then they're fighting against the bigger clubs who are, you know, that's a kind of an unseen part of the battle, I think, really. Well, we've seen that. The, apparently the news is that £22 million, which is, I don't know, um, uh, hang on, what's £22 million? That's about how much Guardiola earns in a year, £22 million. That is what each of the top six clubs have been fined in the UK, and then they'll be fined more if they do it again. £22 million to, let's call them Tranmere, is like two years' worth of income, three years' worth of income. There is so much of a disparity... We can't do anything because it's capitalism. Um, so why not support the local club? Or even better, go amateur. Segway, GB United, British Olympic football and the end of the amateur dream. Published in 2011. Uh, when you pitched that to Paul and Jane, did you think it would be quite an easy book to write? Yeah, I don't know. I remember having a chat with Paul about it and Paul seemed quite enthusiastic at the time. So whether it was easy or not, I suppose the hard part of that book was just tracking people down. So, which, which I must say, I really quite enjoyed because I was trying to find players that you know you wouldn't you know they're, they're, they're all from years gone by, and even the ones that played as amateurs for professional clubs weren't always that hard to find. Uh, so it was a monumental sort of search exercise to find all those players, which I, I you know I really enjoyed. I even managed to find one who played in the '36 Olympics and shook, shook Adolf Hitler's hand, mm. and uh, so that was you know that was. Uh, I really enjoyed doing that book. I felt, and you were kind of telling people's individual stories about their experiences, which was kind of, you know, it was like a sort of a matter of record, I suppose. In yeah. I think that's what my Youth Cup book is is going to do too. Although yeah. uh, the Youth Cup starts in the early fifties, uh, Britain won gold in nineteen oh eight and nineteen twelve uh, as amateurs, and then in nineteen twenty it all went wrong because uh, we were the uh, gentlemen, but the other teams were the players in the kind of cricketing way. So we were treating it like cricket, um, whereas um, the other sides were treating it like the American basketball team in 1992. Let's just pick the best. Yeah, yeah that's right. Yeah, so you, you got the Uruguayans coming through then, you know, obviously very strong in the, in the 20s. And, and that went on for years and years, you know. And, and we had the people around the FA who were, you know, <clears throat> were stuck in those Victorian times. And, you know, we carried on fielding teams in the 60s. They were, they were normally still amateur and other teams were just flagrantly abusing that you know I mean at the very end you know in the very far, not to fast was to the old book necessarily but at the very end of it you know when Charles Hughes was the manager and they played Bulgaria in his final qualifier at um, 
at Wembley, there's like 2,000 people there, and most of the Bulgarian team have been at the World Cup in Mexico the year before, and most of the, of the British team, one was from Albion Rovers, and the rest were from the Isthmian League, and they beat them. I mean, it's an unbelievable result, really. Wow. But, um, you know, it had been abused over decades, and really, when it got to the 70s, although we that wasn't why we stopped, you know, they got rid of the amateur, amateur idea in this country, you know, they, there were no gentlemen and players, everyone was a player, mm. so we couldn't have a team after that, but... 1948, Matt Busby was in charge. Britain lost in the semi-final and the third-place playoff. Um, what did you garner from that tournament? Yeah, well, it got, it got organised quicker than the World Cup. So, we organized, you know, the Olympics came back quicker, and so therefore the football came back quicker. And, you know, and it, was re- it was relatively well, um, you know, relatively well attended, really, that, that, that tournament. And it was, I managed to track down a few players from that. Fantastic Scottish guy called Angus Carmichael. Who, who you know remembered it all, and you know it was a big thing for the players then because you know they went on a few, they went to Switzerland to play a couple of warm-up games and saw a kind of uh, you know rationing was still here then, and they, they saw a completely different world. It was, uh, yeah, so I think you know that was kind of the last hurrah for the British team, really. You know, obviously they had a, had a you know a famous manager and you know and a few players that, that, that did pretty well in, in in that tournament. So you know that, that was in many ways I think the last hurrah in terms of being competitive. You know, maybe maybe getting a medal again. I think really so. Yeah, that was yeah, that was a good tournament. I think. Do you know? I can't remember how we did, but what links Marvin Sordell, Ryan Bertrand, Craig Dawson, Micah Richards, Tom Cleverley, Craig Bellamy, Daniel Sturridge, and Captain Ryan Giggs? Well, I don't know. Well, they they all represented Great Britain for the London 2012 games, and I can't remember if we got a medal or if we went out. Yeah, quarterfinals. No, I mean, we didn't. Yeah, it didn't really capture the public imagination uh, in, in a way. And I think that's because there were so many other fantastic things going on at the Olympics. There's so much competition for it that it was, you know, you know. And I think that's the thing with, with the Olympics generally, isn't it? You know, you know, you're going to see a lot of fantastic sportsmen there, so you kind of forget about that. I know when I wrote the chapter about 1960s, one of the Scottish guys, Hunter Devine, he stayed on to watch some of the uh, the athletics. And he, I remember him telling me a story how he's watching this athletics and he was talking to this American guy and he said, what do you do? And he told this American guy, I've just been playing the football and he said, what do you do? He said, I just won a, um, a medal in the boxing. What's your name? He said, oh, I'm Cassius Clay. Oh, wow. And, I, and that was, you know, and they, and they were just sat there watching his athletics together, you know. It was, uh, so, so that, you know, and that's, I think, with the Olympics is this great conflagration of all these fantastic sports people. So therefore, I think football's kind of, quite rightly, in a way, you've got to take a backseat because there's other sports people that don't get that level of exposure. So maybe it's only fair that football shouldn't get that level of exposure, and therefore it doesn't carry the kudos. And I think that's probably why the GB team didn't, didn't well, it, it ended for other reasons, but that's why I didn't yeah. capture the imagination in 2012. And coupled with that, um, you don't get paid for being an Olympian. You get a medal, and then you earn all your money uh, doing question of sport and teaming up with Vitality and Flora. So I, I guess that the, the footballers are doing, during pre-season... Uh, are doing or postseason? They're doing the country a favour, so it, it doesn't look like um, we will re- carry a team to US and Canada because we're all our funding is going towards the sit-down sports. Um, we hope that in July the Olympics begin. As we speak, we have no idea. Yeah, yeah, that's right. Yeah, and you look at the Olympics. I mean, there's no squash in the Olympics. I was listening to the radio the other day, and I thought, God, I couldn't believe that wasn't in the Olympics, but it's not. You know, so it's it's yeah. So my last question, Steve Menry, and by the way, your laminated football library card has Brian Glanville on it, your world soccer uh, colleague. Brian Have Glan- you met him? Uh, no, I've got, a, I've got a letter written on a typewriter in my, in my uh, file somewhere from him. What pertaining uh, to? Remember, 
Yeah, but from Brian, because I think that was because in the 60s, he used to run a like a, a friendlies team. And the, and I think it was our, and I was trying to get in touch with the keeper, Mike Pinner. Was that what I wrote to him? I can't remember now. But anyway, he wrote me a very, he wrote me a very nice letter on this old typewriter. Fantastic. So I'd say that that's Wow. Uh, this football library is to be named after Brian Glanville, whom you're aware this September is 90. Yeah. 90. Yeah. We were shortlisted for the Football Book of the Year Award, Brian and I, at the same time. To, to my great surprise, no, no surprise to Brian, I'm sure, because he's, <laughs> you know, he's a fantastic writer, but yeah, we were both up at the same time. Uh, so. I hope, did he read Outcasts? Oh, oh, I don't know. I, I wouldn't be so vain to ask him that, but, uh, no, I don't know. <laughs> but he knew, when I wrote to him, he knew I was, so that... that that was nice enough. Exactly. So, you know, I guess he knew from world soccer, you know, we'd seen each other's bylines. So. The s- true success is when you identify someone's... But I remember turning round uh, and seeing that it was John Azelwood behind me. And I went, ah, John, I loved your book about doing the 92. Uh, and also behind me next to him was Jack Pitt Brook, who has done great things at The Athletic now. So you never know uh, who's going to be in a press box. But Steve Mennery, co-editor of The Away Leg, 11 football stories from on the road... Can you give me an example of a time when football has restored your faith in humanity? So when I went to San Marino and I watched the football out there, they got well, they had sixteen teams. One played in the Italian league, which I believe has now gone bust, and then fifteen clubs in their, in their own little sort of mini mountain. <clears throat> when they qualified for Europe, right, they get you know let's say half a million euros for playing in the first round of the Champions League and whatever you get for Europa League. All that money goes into a pot and it gets shared around. I thought, what a fantastic idea, you know. And it can only happen in the weakest country in Europe. And even there, some of the clubs necessarily agitated against it, as you'd imagine. But they just shared it around. They said, no, 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 we're going to share that money, man. I thought that seemed a, that seemed a great idea. Whether it's changed since then or not, I'm not sure. I don't think it has. But, uh, yeah, and I think that's the only place in Europe that does that, shares the money about. Um, I'm going to check if there is a San Marinese team. Uh, there are. The cup winners were La Fiorita and third place was Tre Penne. Yeah. So they all set of ultras, Chippenny. Very very noisy uh, set of ultras. They're all in fact Italians. They're not from San Marino at all. But they they've taken to to, to follow Chippenny. I think they've been to Wales to, to support them as I recall. Yeah, they're following around. Um, I've got Europe United, which is Matt Walker's book. He talks about being on San Marino television because uh, it's so rare for a foreigner to come and do a piece about the domestic league. Uh, but I, I hope that all the football globe trotters, the likes of you and James Montague and Jonathan Wilson, who called you, what is it, a sure-footed guide? Uh, that's a good thing to have on your CV. Uh, yep. Positive from Jonathan Wilson. Uh, and yeah, very I, nice. Very nice bloke. Uh, who I turned on, I turned on to Radio 4 just the other night, and Jonathan Wilson was talking about the new Ukraine strip. And I was so pleased, going, oh, I've spoken to Jonathan Wilson. Here he is, giving his wisdom. Uh, to the world through the BBC, the great BBC. Um, I think you should be so proud of this book. All proceeds do go to community integrated care, uh, which is based... Uh, oh, I can't remember where it's based. The UK. It's the Northwest, I think, isn't it? And it's, the biggest, it's the biggest social care charity in the country. They're, they're also in Widnes, apparently. Um, all proceeds get to it until we can hit the road again. The away leg fills the void with incredible... Football stories put together by James Montague and Steve Mennery. Now you've got to go off to an appointment, so I won't keep you any longer. Yes, thank you very much. It's been an absolute pleasure to be on and speak to you, Johnny. Very good luck with your own book. I look forward to seeing it on the on the bookshelves, oh, virtual well, or other.